Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome, listeners, and thanks for joining us on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. In this episode, we're looking into a fantastic UFO case. People seeing UFOs on the ground and fighter pilots seeing them in the air makes for a very compelling story. On September 19, 1976, a UFO was spotted over Tehran, Iran, and everyone freaked out when an investigating F-4 jet locked onto the craft. Its instrumentation went out, and the pilot had to return to base. Then a second F-4 experienced a similar situation with an additional failure of its weapon system. The flight crews and those on the ground were stunned. So what was this UFO capable of affecting the operational equipment of two fighter jets? Well, before we start, just a quick reminder. Check out the Paranormal Factor Podcast Facebook page. You're going to get a lot of great content there Monday through Friday. Things like monsters, quizzes, film, TV, and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. Now, on to our episode. At a press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on November the 12th, 2007, the pilot of one of the F-4s involved in this incident, then-General Parviz Jafari, recounted his ordeal. How he tried to intercept an object which was flashing with intense red, green, orange, and blue lights. Jafari said, Four other objects with different shapes separated from the main one at different times during this close encounter. Whenever they were close to me, my weapons were jammed and my radio communications were garbled. One of the objects headed toward me. I thought it was a missile. I tried to launch a heat-seeking missile at it, but my missile panel went out. Another followed me when I was descending on the way back. One of the separated objects landed in an open area radiating a high bright light in which the sands on the ground were visible. We could hear emergency squash all the way, which was reported by other airlines flying at the time and continued for another couple of days. This incident is regarded by a number of UFO researchers to be one of the foremost UFO encounters ever recorded. Some researchers consider it strong evidence for the extraterrestrial origins of the UFO because there was a blackout on the F-4 just when it was going to fire. Also, instrumental breakdowns on two different aircraft while they were on the same chase suggest this was not a coincidence. A military spy satellite also recorded this incident. The DSP-1 satellite detected an infrared anomaly during the time of the event that lasted for about an hour. But the event started with witnesses on the ground, as they sighted something extraordinary in the skies above Tehran. In September 1976, people around the Iranian capital city of Tehran were seeing strange lights in the sky. What people on the ground of Iran's capital reported as an object similar to a star, but much brighter. 
And in the early morning hours of that night, two Imperial Iranian Air Force F-4 Phantom II jets would be dispatched to intercept this strange UFO. Here's what happened. It was September the 18th, at approximately 10.30 p.m. in the city of Tehran, Iran. A phone call came in to Hossein Perozi, a night shift supervisor at the air traffic control tower at the Marabad Airport. At the time, he was training a small group of air traffic controllers. As he answered the phone, the voice of a concerned woman came over the receiver. She reported to him that she was seeing a strange object, like a sun in the sky, about 2,000 feet above her. The colors of the object changed from blue to orange, to red, to yellow. While she was adamant, Perosi knew misidentifications of objects in the sky, well, they happened all the time. So he was quick to discount the event, telling the woman they didn't have any aircraft in that area. He told her it was most likely just a bright star in the night sky. But then, another call came in. This witness would describe a similar object. This time, they would report that they saw it changing different colors from blue to yellow and to red. It then split in two and would eventually merge back together. Well, now intrigued, Perosi headed to the deck of the control tower to see if he could spot anything unusual. Through his binoculars, Perosi saw an object in the northeast part of Tehran. He would conclude it was about five miles away at a height of about 6,000 feet. The right end was blue, the left end was blue, and in the middle was a flashing red light. The object was seesawing up and down and moving towards the north very slowly. Perosi was startled. The erratic behavior left him curious as to what the object could be. But even more curious was that the object suddenly disappeared and then reappeared a mile or so away in mere seconds. And it was stunningly bright. But he was able to make out the shape of the object. It appeared to be almost starfish-shaped. To reassure him that he wasn't hallucinating, he handed the binoculars over to one of the trainees to confirm what he was seeing. The trainee saw the same exact thing. Perosi was now concerned because of aircraft that might be scheduled to land, and this thing looked like it was getting closer and closer to restricted airspace. Several aircraft were due to cross into the flight information region, and this object was clearly in the space where this was to happen. Then, something strange. The incoming flights began to contact the tower concerned as they were hearing emergency signals coming from an automatic aircraft distress transmitter. The first to report in was an airliner who called and asked if an aircraft had crashed in the area. The pilots had received an automatic signal. Perosi assured them there was no crashed aircraft, nor had any made a forced landing. Then came several more calls, including a Swiss plane and an Iranian Airlines flight. Both reported hearing the emergency signal. Well, it was now clear that Perosi had to do something for the safety of all the flights in the area, and more importantly, for the entire city of Tehran. He decided to report the situation to the local Iranian Air Force headquarters. He explained the situation to one of the officers on duty, who in turn relayed the information to the senior officer in charge that night. Not a half hour later, the officer himself phoned Perosi back and told him personally that he'd went outside to try to observe the object. His exact words to Perosi were that it was most definitely not a star. And this is when the first jet was scrambled to intercept the object. The initial sightings on the ground would be just the start of this strange incident. 
and as compelling as they were, they would pale in comparison to what was to come. An encounter between experienced military pilots and an aggressive unknown flying object. Well, now the call had gone out to the Imperial Iranian Air Force. With the Shah of Iran's close ties to the United States, the Iranian Air Force had modern military aircraft, especially its fighter force. The pilots flying these jets would now take center stage as the strange encounter continued. Approximately 175 miles west of Tehran, an F-4 Phantom Fighter jet took off from Sharoki Air Force Base piloted by Captain Mohammad Reza Aziz Khani. The jet made its way toward the object that ground-level witnesses had reported. Aziz Khani reported the object was of such brilliance it could be seen from almost 70 miles away. Whatever it was, it was very, very large. He increased his speed. But even speeds over Mach 2 couldn't catch the incredibly fast object now making its way to the boundaries of Tehran. Unable to observe the object at a perceptible distance, Aziz Khani was ordered back to base. The pilot then noticed something. The object had suddenly reappeared directly above the city of Tehran. It had somehow traveled an impossible distance at impossible speeds. So he headed toward the object again, as it now seemed to have stopped mid-flight. As he approached at about 25 nautical miles, his navigational equipment on board began to malfunction. At this point, Aziz Khani veered away from the object and the equipment returned to normal. But every time he got close, it would shut down again. Confused and obviously concerned, the pilot had no choice but to return to base. After landing and reporting what he'd seen, Aziz Khani, still quite unnerved, reported the instrumentation malfunctions he had experienced when in close proximity to the object. Major Parviz Jafari, a squadron commander, along with First Lieutenant Jalal Damirian as weapons officer, were dispatched in a second F-4 Phantom II to intercept the object. Jafari acquired radar lock on an object at a range of 27 nautical miles. The pilot stated its size compared to a Boeing KC-135 Strato tanker. He approached the object. Zafari described it as flashing with intense red, green, orange, and blue light so bright he could not even see its body. Suddenly, his plane's communication system shut off. Then Jafari was startled by a round object which came out of the larger UFO and started coming straight toward him at high speed. Jafari was sure it must be a missile. He attempted to fire an AIM-9 Sidewinder infrared-guided missile, but as he attempted to fire, suddenly, nothing was working. The weapons control panel was out, and he lost all the instruments, including the radio. He became very frightened. At this point, if this object got any closer, he genuinely believed he would have to eject from the plane. But looking at his ejection equipment, even it was malfunctioning. To avoid a head-on collision with the object, Jafari banked hard left to avoid it. He turned to look out his window and discovered the object was gone. It was literally nowhere to be seen. Before he could wonder where it had gone, another one of the detached objects began circling his jet. Jafari accelerated and tried to get away from the object, but it continued following him. He made the decision to drop into a quick negative G dive. The object shot past him and soon disappeared. 
Having evaded the oncoming object, his equipment remained shut down and only returned to normal after his jet moved away from the object. Jafari finally got a signal on his radio. When he could finally report to air traffic control, Jafari was ordered to return to base if he was unable to get any nearer to the object, and Jafari cut off pursuit. As he was returning, he told air controllers that the UFO had doubled back on him, and he was in danger of being forced down. The disturbed voice of the pilot said on tape, Something is coming at me from behind. I think it is going to crash into me. It's just passed by, missing me narrowly. As he started back to base, Jafari looked to his left and saw the main diamond-shaped object up above. But another bright object came out of it and headed directly toward the ground. Expecting an explosion that never came, he later claimed it seemed to slow down and land gently on the ground, radiating a high bright light. The F-4 crew then overflew the site at a decreased altitude and marked the position of the light's touchdown. Jafari would later comment the object was so bright that it lit up the ground and he could see rocks around it. The object had touched down near the Ray Oil Refinery on the outskirts of Tehran. Then they landed at Marabad Airport. The crew noted that each time they passed through a magnetic bearing of 150 degrees from the Marabad Airport, they experienced interference and communications failure. A civilian airliner that was approaching Marabad also experienced a loss of communications at the same position. As the F-4 was on final approach, they sighted yet another object, cylinder-shaped, with bright, steady lights on each end and a flashing light in the middle. The object overflew the F-4 as they were on approach. Marabad Tower reported no other aircraft in the area, but tower personnel were able to see the object once given directions where to look by Jafari, and the original team at the control tower were witness to most of what the two F-4 crews experienced. The control tower supervisor, Hussein Farozi, told the TV show Sightings that one of the pilots was in a panic with the large UFO on its tail. According to Farozi and other controllers, the UFO performed a low-altitude flyby over Marabad at about 2,200 to 2,500 feet. It was described as a cylinder-shaped object as large as a tour bus, with bright steady lights on each end and a flashing one in the middle. During the flyby, the control tower lost all power, although other parts of the airport were unaffected. The UFO then took off to the west and was spotted 25 minutes later over the Mediterranean by an Egyptian Air Force pilot, then again over Lisbon, Portugal by the pilot, crew, and passengers of a KLM flight reporting that it was speeding westward over the Atlantic Ocean. As the early hours rolled on, Jafari returned to headquarters to give an extensive interview to several Iranian generals and Lieutenant Colonel Olin Mui. Mui was a United States Air Force officer with the U.S. Military Advisory and Assistance Group in Iran. Jafari explained everything moment by moment as Mui took extensive notes. When Jafari got to the part where he attempted to fire missiles on the object but couldn't, Mui simply told him, you're probably lucky you couldn't fire on it. The investigation into the object that either gently crashed or landed on the ground was still a big source of interest, and possibly even a remaining threat. An emergency signal both with the Iranian Air Force and other aircraft in the area was still being reported. These signals, known as squawks, are a sound similar to the beeping of an ambulance or police car, 
it indicates to any planes in the vicinity that there was either a crash landing or a pilot had to eject from an aircraft. This particular squawk had gone on for days after the object allegedly touched down on the ground, but the source could not be found. After a close medical examination and permission to return to active flight status, Jafari accompanied a helicopter pilot to the area where he witnessed the object land. The emergency squawk still continued. They landed in the vicinity and began a thorough search. Jafari looked for burned areas on the ground or an impact site of some kind, but he found nothing. He even visited small homes in the area asking if anyone had seen or heard anything happen the night before. Occupants of nearby houses only reported hearing a loud noise and a bright flash of light during the night, and several residents reported having heard a powerful rumbling at one point during the night that shook the walls. It was brief, and no crashed aircraft or explosion had been witnessed or found after the event. But the question of what the object could have been was being assessed. Soon officials and skeptics would provide their own conclusions, conclusions that witnesses would have a hard time accepting. According to U.S. skeptic journalist Philip J. Class, it was likely the pilots initially saw an astronomical body, probably Jupiter, an explanation also cited by aerospace researcher James Oberg. Class further suggested, somewhat disingenuously, that pilot incompetence was to blame. Class believed the air crews at the time were tired and rattled and could have mistaken stars or meteors for UFOs and missiles. I can tell you folks, as a 20-year veteran of the Air Force, that pilots have extreme competency in the operation of their aircraft. You don't hand over a multi-million dollar piece of equipment to someone who is not fully capable. Class also noted equipment malfunction likely accounted for the reported equipment failures. According to Class, the Westinghouse technician at Cherokee Air Base stated that only the first F-4 reported failing equipment. And this F-4 was known for equipment failures with a long history of electrical outages, having been repaired only a month before the incident. But that hardly explains why the aircraft malfunctioned only in close proximity to the UFO. In addition, Class pointed out radio faults on airliners are not unknown, and that's why they carry backup radio sets. Regarding one pilot's report of bright objects that came at him and that shot straight down into the ground, American skeptic author Brian Dunning believed he had a rational explanation. Dunning observed that September 19th, the day of the incident, was the height of two annual meteorite showers, so observation of falling objects or odd lights would not have been unusual. According to Dunning, Once we look at all the story's elements without the presumption of an alien spaceship, the only thing unusual about the Tehran 1976 UFO case is that planes were chasing celestial objects and had equipment failures. There have been many cases where planes had equipment failures, and there have been many cases where planes misidentified celestial objects. Once in a while, both will happen on the same flight. This incident is notable because of the amount of evidence kept on the events involving the UFO. It generated a Defense Intelligence Agency report four pages long that was sent to the White House, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the NSA, and the CIA. So why was the United States so quick to become involved in this incident? Well, for starters, it was the fact that the Iranian Air Force fighter jets were purchased from the United States, 
and manufactured by American industry. Apparently, the U.S. government and Air Force wanted to know what exactly it was in the skies of Tehran that had both outmaneuvered and directly affected the instrumentation and weapons on their fighter jets. The object was seen by multiple witnesses from different locations and viewpoints, both airborne and from the ground. The credibility of many of these witnesses was high. An Iranian Air Force general, qualified air crew, and experienced tower operators. Visual sightings were confirmed by radar. Similar electromagnetic effects were reported by three separate aircraft. There were physiological effects in some of the crew members. For example, loss of night vision due to the brightness of the object. There have been many explanations proposed for this incident as we've seen. There were reports one of the planes that conducted the intercept had a history of electrical malfunction. But that doesn't explain the extreme coincidence of multiple planes having system disruptions, including a civilian flight, all at the same general time. Authorities also advised the day of the incident coincided with two major meteorite showers, so these were likely just meteorites. But that doesn't account for the maneuvers of the craft or the length of time it was seen in the air, and meteorites are not known to cause aircraft equipment malfunctions. Former U.S. Air Force Major Roland B. Evans, who wrote an official report of the incident, would later state, To me, there were too many circumstances that fit, indicating this thing was not an aberration. It was not swamp gas or anything else of the sort. There's just no other way to explain it. It was real. It was there. This case is a classic, which means all the criteria necessary for a valid study of the UFO phenomenon is there. Almost every pilot sometime in their career will experience something unusual, something out of the ordinary. Sometimes this is a natural occurrence, like weather or faulty equipment. But sometimes it's something clearly unknown and even otherworldly, like strange lights or flying craft that seem to defy physics. Sometimes it's an encounter unlike anything they have experienced or even heard about. That would seem to be the case with the pilots who encountered something they were unprepared for. Something they would never, could never, forget over the skies of Tehran in 1976. One last item. The Shah of Iran later called a meeting attended by high-ranking officers and the pilots involved with the incident, wanting to hear a play-by-play -play of the event. When it came time for Jafari's side of the story, the Shah asked him point-blank, what do you think it was? Jafari responded that, in his opinion, whatever it was could not be from our planet, because if anyone on this planet had such power, it would bring the whole planet under its command. Well, next week we're investigating the Murfreesboro Mud Monster, a mysterious large beast sighted at midnight in 1973 when a young couple was parked by a desolate riverside for a romantic interlude. Well, they were shockingly interrupted when they came face to face with a huge, wet, hairy, mud-slathered beast. The bizarre creature would go on to torment the citizens of this small community. The horrific encounters would continue for about 14 days before its reign of terror abruptly ended, resulting in one of the strangest and in some ways 
most frightening cases in the history of cryptids. So join us as we meet one of the scariest and weirdest creatures ever, next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. That's right, it's quiz time. You guys ready? Here we go. Where have the strange Lemurians been reportedly seen? Is it A, Mount Shasta? B, the Azor Islands? C, the Caspian Sea? Or D, Antarctica? Once again, where have the strange Lemurians been reportedly seen? Is it Mount Shasta, the Azor Islands, the Caspian Sea, or Antarctica? And the answer is... A. Mount Shasta. California's Mount Shasta has been the subject of an unusually large number of myths and legends, but in particular, it's often said there is a secret city beneath its peaks. In some stories, the city is no longer inhabited, while in others, it's inhabited by a technologically advanced society of human beings or maybe even mythical creatures, the Lemurians. There's a well-known legend that says that somewhere deep beneath Northern California's 14,179-foot-tall Mount Shasta is a complex of tunnels and a hidden city called Telos, the ancient city of light of the Lemurians. They were the residents of the mythical lost continent of Lemuria, which met its ruin under the waves of the Pacific, or the Indian Ocean, depending on who you ask, thousands of years ago. Lemurians, believed to have survived the catastrophe, are said to have settled in Telos, and over the years, their offspring have been sporadically reported wandering around the area. They're described as seven feet tall, with long flowing hair, often seen wearing sandals and white robes. As an aside, somebody dressed like that and seven feet tall would certainly stand out. The legend grew from an offhand mention of Lemuria in the 1880s. In 1899, Frederick Spencer Oliver published A Dweller on Two Planets, which claimed survivors from the sunken continent were living in or on Mount Shasta. Oliver's Lemurians lived in a complex of tunnels beneath the mountain. According to another legend, J.C. Brown was a British prospector who discovered a lost underground city beneath Mount Shasta in 1904. Brown had been hired by the Lord Cowdray Mining Company of England to prospect for gold and discovered a cave which sloped downward for 11 miles. In the cave, he found an underground village filled with gold, shields, and mummies, some being up to 10 feet tall. While some people think Lemuria exists only in the mind, others say they've seen tall, robed Lemurians shopping in town or traveling in and out of the mountain in cloud-shaped UFOs. Today, some even believe the city of Telos houses 1.5 million Lemurians inside Mount Shasta. One final legend for your consideration. Professor Edgar Lucian Larkin was for many years the director of the Mount Lowe Observatory in Southern California, about 800 miles south of Mount Shasta. He is said to have viewed the Lemurian site on Mount Shasta using his telescope many times. 
The legend states Professor Larkin said in newspaper and magazine articles that he had seen on many occasions the great temple of the Lemurian village while gazing through a long-distance telescope. Now, whether the Lemurians exist any more than Atlanteans, there is no doubt there's a lot of strangeness associated with Mount Shasta, from Native American legends to frequent UFO and Bigfoot sightings. The mountain, said by visitors, gives off a weird energy, and a supernatural vibe is always evident. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.